Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. And when we have two equal things, no, That was the sound of students at Marsden Road Public School responding chorally through a chant they have learnt on conjunctions. I'm sure that you can hear their enthusiasm through the audio, but what you won't be able to see are the corresponding actions, attention and smiling faces. It's truly a pleasure to witness. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak to the principal of Marsden Road Public School, Manisha Gazula. Before visiting the school, I had heard a lot about Manisha's leadership style and how she had been compared to Catherine Burblesing from Michaela Community School in the UK. So I wasn't sure what to expect when I actually saw the school in action. However, any reservations that I may have had before visiting were quickly alleviated when I got to see classes full of students learning and clearly showing that they were also enjoying it. Marsden Road has recently featured in a number of reports from the Grattan Institute on role model schools from around the country. This is the first of a two-part series on the school. In the next episode, you will hear from Deputy Principal Choi Veray. However, in this conversation, Manisha outlines her leadership principles, their behaviour curriculum called The Marsden Way, and the core program. So, here is my conversation with Manisha Gazula. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Manisha Gazula, Principal of Marsden Road Public School. I recently had the pleasure of visiting Marsden Road and to say it was impressive is an understatement. But before we start talking about Marsden Road, Manisha, can you just tell us a bit about your own journey and how you ended up in the position that you were in today? Uh, Brandon, and it is lovely to be on your podcast. And yes, I have met you a couple of times as well. And it gives me also great pleasure to be chatting with you on a matter that is important to all of us, which is education. Uh, so coming back to your question, um, as, like every one of us, I started as a teacher at Miller Public School, which is in Sydney Southwest and a tough school. Um, I taught there for 11 years and it taught me a lot about teaching and gave me a great insight as to what are the learning needs and the social needs of some of the kids that are most vulnerable in our society. Uh, so those were probably the more uh, most enjoyable period of my time as a teacher because I developed myself as a teacher. I knew what good teaching practice looks like, but what good teaching practice looks in a setting where kids come with other package uh, is a completely different uh, ball game, and I think Miller prepared me for it. 
once I got, uh, after working there for 11 years, I was fortunate enough uh, to, I, I, I went, in fact, you know, I started there as a practicum teacher. <laughs> so when there's a prac student, uh, and then they uh, gave me casual work for the first term, and things just happened, and then I was made temporary teacher, and then a, a permanent teacher, and then became an assistant principal over there, and ended up being a um, relieving principal. So in the span of 11 years, so from right from practicum student to relieving principal in one school. Yeah. And of course, afterwards, I went as a deputy principal to Blacksell Street. Uh, and then from Blacksell Street, uh, where I was deputy in a big school of no, over 900 students. Um, and some of the practices that uh, were happening at Blacksell Street aligned with what I was, uh, what I believed in. But then I still want my own school do not experiment, but you know, you have certain ideas about how schools should be run, which by then I had formed very strong opinions about what schooling should be about. And I needed my own school. So I was again, once again, applied to become a principal of a smaller school to try at a small scale to see how am I going to, as a principal, lead change management? Because I knew things would have to change. Uh, because by then, if you've been at schools, you know that things are not, it's kind of, Quite, teachers can be quite confused because of the number of things that happen in different schools in different ways. So I needed to go to a school where I could try out my ways. I did at Cartwright. After being the principal of Cartwright for three years, I decided that, okay, this works. I can do this in a bigger school. And therefore, I started at Master Lord in 2016. So I started here as a relieving principal because the principal before me was on a retirement. Uh, he had not retired, but he had taken a long service leave. I had three terms of acting as a relieving principal. And then, of course, the job came up and then I became the substantive principal and have been here since then. Yeah, awesome. And, and you know, so do you, do you think like before you even became a teacher mm -hmm. that you always had like aspirations of, of moving into like a, a school leader's role? Uh I always wanted to be a teacher. I was studying to yeah. be a lecturer when I was, I came from India and yeah. I went to university to study to be an English lecturer. And I came here and moved on to uh, teaching at a primary school. Uh, and I, it wasn't my, my aim was when I went into teaching, I didn't go with the, in, uh, with the idea that I have to become a principal. Yeah. That did not happen. However, within three or four years, and some of the factors were, that pushed me to a leadership roles were, were things that I knew was not right in terms of teaching philosophy. And it did fit in with how I, what I believe should be best practice. And it confused me. And I was thinking, no, that's not how it should be. It should be done this way. And somehow I believed in my own way of teaching. And therefore I thought if I wanted to see change happen, and if I wanted to teach the way I want to teach, then I had to have some form of leadership role. So that's how, and I knew I just couldn't become from a teacher to a principal that I had to follow because there is, there are other things to leading a school other than just knowing your curriculum and your pedagogy. So I had yeah. to learn the ropes and therefore, you know, but I knew very early on in my career, I knew that I wanted my own school one day. Yeah. Definitely. And so when you, when you talk about, um, you know, there were certain ways that you wanted things to be done, mm -hmm. what were some of those like examples Okay, I can give you examples. Uh, for example, um, I, okay, now we know explicit instruction, we know the rose and shines principles of teaching, you know, but in those days, I may have not known the science or the, or the, even the word pedagogy. Uh, yes. You know, I never used the word pedagogy when I first started teaching. Um, I didn't know those uh, terms, but what I knew was how to teach. Like if you, if I want to learn something new, that is absolutely novel, new thing and a, a new skill, I would want someone to show me how it's done step by yep. step. 
give me time to practice, correct me as I'm doing it, then give me, then give me a turn to again practice and then show me and work with me and then let me do it in bits and then leave me alone once they know that I'm 100% sure I'm doing what I'm doing. And I thought that's the way to teach subjects like grammar or uh, topics like grammar or even any concept maths. I thought that's the way you would teach. Yeah. One of the things I noticed was when I first started teaching, uh, I was told that I couldn't, I had to submit my timetable. And on the timetable, I had grammar. And I was called in and asked as to why do I teach grammar as a topic or as a subject? And I said, and how else am I going to teach grammar? Because to me, I was taught grammar as a subject. And uh, they said, no, no, you should teach grammar through your reading program, group kind of reading. And I just couldn't see it happening in my head. I couldn't, I couldn't envision, I couldn't envision as to how that was going to look. And I just could not understand how am I going to teach children uh, concepts such as uh, clauses and how to change a compound sentence into complex sentence. What is a clause in the first? How am I going to teach them while I'm teaching them how to read and uh, comprehend? So it was too hard for me to understand or to even do it. So I just continued. I just took off grammar from my timetable, but then I went back in the classroom and still taught the way I think it should be taught. Mm. And those were kind of things. But I knew I was kind of not following the rules per se, but just think, knowing in my head that I was not doing any disservice to my students by not following those things that were told, told to me or expected of me to do. Simply, even with the maths. Like, I did not think that everything had to be left for discovery learning. Everything does not have to be play-based. Everything doesn't have to be fun. Sometimes just trying to understand the concepts, it can be challenging, it can be tiring, but sometimes you just plot through those difficult uh, uh, steps before the, you, know, you get the knowledge and the skills, and then you realize, ah, that's how it's done. And then you can give problems that are more difficult and that are more, uh, you know, children can then use their basic understanding and knowledge and skills to solve those problems. Uh, those are the few things that, you know, kind of made me understand that. Uh, and it's later on in my years as I met other people who thought the same. And then when I read a little bit more through my, as I evolved as a teacher, that I kind yeah. of realized, okay, what I'm doing is the right way of teaching with explicit instruction to novice. Yeah. yeah. So that was perhaps yeah. one of the reasons why uh, it was just, it's just a pedagogy. The way we thought did not yeah. fit with the way I believe should be taught. Yeah. And so did that come from your own experiences as a student? Uh, I think so too, because um, look, I can't, uh, I, 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 coming from a country where we were, we were taught three uh, subjects, uh, three, sorry, three languages. So when you are taught a language, not just English, but we had to learn three, two other languages, and they are not your first language, they are your second and your third and your fourth language. And yeah. the way it is taught to you, it is very explicit, it's step-by-step, step. it's very clear. People just don't hand over books to you with paragraphs and expect you to learn to read and comprehend. So it, it is something that I just knew instinctively that if you have to teach someone a language or mathematical concepts or scientific concepts, you have to explain, you have to teach them step by step, take a big idea, break it into small chunks and teach explicitly. It's not a novel idea. It is something that we all do in our day-to-day -day lives. Somehow it becomes, seems like a novelty when it comes to teaching. You teach someone to change a tire, on a tire. you're not going to just say that here's a tire, here's a uh, whatever you call that thing that you, you know, jack up the tire. You don't, you're not going to do that. 
Aren't you going to sit there and show them first and then step-by-step mm-hmm. model it and then give them a chance to do it? You do it in every other, every other way. Recipes are written step-by-step. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I just find it interesting that how come it is such a novel idea when it comes to teach five-year-olds? So I just yeah. thought it was the way to do it. Yeah. yeah. And so along the way, in terms of your own journey, did you have some people in particular that, that really kind of supported your um, development as a, a school leader? Uh, not okay. Uh, so when I was in my third year as an assistant principal, and by that time, I think I probably would have been teaching for 10 years. Yep. Uh, I went to a, uh, I think in those days we used to have, I think it used to be called PSFP funding, which is priority school funding program. And um, there was this conference where different schools with PSFP funding, they came together to showcase what they were doing. And there was a school called Blacksville Street, which is in Granville. They're still there. Um, and they were talking about how they actually use the PM benchmarking, but they had a more comprehensive questions instead of three or four questions that would come with the card. They had more comprehensive questions so that they could uh, assess the students a little bit more deeper. And I was listening to what the deputy principal was presenting. And I went and asked him, where did you get this idea from? And he said, oh, look, we are working from a consultant who is based in Hong Kong. And she works with our school. And I got her email address and I sent her an email, said, if you're ever in Sydney, come and see me. I would like to meet you. And so it so happened she came three or four months later. She was in Sydney and she contacted me. And I said, we caught up doing my RFF. And her name is Joanne Duna and you know her very well. And I met her and uh, within 40 minutes, I just knew here's the answer. Someone here is thinking like me. And uh, Joanne, as you know, has done a lot of work in literacy. And when she started talking about how much work she's uh, doing in terms of how to teach children to read and write, uh, it kind of fascinated me. And I said to her, look, uh, how about I work with you? And, and, you know, I want this happening at my school. Uh, So my principal uh, fortunately gave me the freedom to work just on my stage. And she said, if you want to try this out, you can work with her on your stage. And uh, which did limit Uh, how much of it we can experiment with because I had stage three and starts with phonics. Um, However, fortunately, the following year, I became the relieving principal and I brought her in and together we discussed and it started step by step because Joanne too was in her, with her, what she was doing in her consultancy was in its infancy. So because it was at that time that we started working together, she kind of uh, would say, why don't you read this book, Manisha? Have you read this book? Do you have you heard of this one? And have you have you thought of this? And together, we kind of, as a principal, I evolved, and my understanding of best pedagogy was supported uh, through yeah. Joanne's, um, I think, collaboration with Joanne Duna. So I owe a lot to her in terms of helping me because there was someone there supporting and guiding me as I evolved as a leader and she evolved as a consultant. So we balanced off each other very well because she, I, I had a school that I was happy to implement the programs and she was there telling me, why don't we do it this way? Does that answer your question? And then it was just from then on, once I got, it's like, you know, once somebody gave me the ropes, it was very easy for me to then look for more. And yeah. some of the people, like some of the, and John Hattie in his, uh, some of his early books played a, uh, had, you know, had a deep impact on my understanding of what, how students learn. How should leaders manage change in the school, effective learning and teaching strategies? Of course, Daniel Willingham, 
and Seidenberg. So the, yeah. the works of these people have played an important part in shaping my own understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, as you mentioned, I, I know Joanne very well. And, um, you know, I could see how important and valuable having someone like that, especially at the start, as you are kind of exploring different right. ideas. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, it would be really valuable to have someone like that um, working alongside of you. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of dip in and out of, of this kind of topic um, throughout our conversation today. But just during those early stages, how did you, you manage that change um, process? And, and, you know, like it, it was quite a new thing that you were trying to implement in terms of how to um, teach children to read. And, and so yeah. I'm sure you would have um, experienced a lot of resistance at the time. Mm-hmm. I'll probably st- talk about Marsden Road Public School because it is a bigger school. And I yeah. did come to Marsden Road and kind of railroaded what they were doing. So yeah. it is a little bit more chat. It was uh, so when I came here in term two, I even started in term two, so not even the beginning of the year. And I, I remember coming in uh, in April, end of April, because that's when uh, term started. And they had L3 in those days at the school because it was an early action for success school. And I came here and with after three weeks, I said, we're not doing early action. We're not doing L3. And uh, of course, as you can imagine, the staff are like, what do you mean we're not doing L3? We are an early action for success school. We should be doing L3. And I said, no, where is it? It's not mandated. <laughs> it's something that you believe that you should do, but you shouldn't be really doing L3. And uh, I had a meeting with the kindergarten teachers and I said, tell me how your day looks. And I went and sat in, or in those, I think we had five kindergarten classes and each day I went and sat on each of those classes and I saw what was happening. And I then had a chat with the teacher afterwards and said, tell me how did that two hours of nine to 11, how did that look in your classroom? What did you achieve in that two hours? And we had a brief discussion. I said, what if I replace this? with something that works. So I had to get the kindergarten teacher on site. So I had to play the game of, you know, you can't, I mean, I know what I was going to do to the school, but I had to still kind of pave a path for myself. And once I knew that kindergarten teachers were struggling with having, you know, 20 other kids running around or doing some coloring and whatsoever, while they were having three, four kids in front of them and trying to teach 10 minutes to each group, Mm. It was chaotic and it was uh, getting them nowhere. So I said, how about if I introduce phonics into the school? I will train, I'll bring a specialist who will train you in how to teach phonics. You will first learn and then they will, and then you will go and teach. So I started with the kindergarten. Of course, um, it didn't go down very well with everyone because there was one new teacher and she said, if I don't do, so it's going to take me forever to learn how to teach phonics. So what am I going to do if I don't have L3? And I said to her, you will teach. And that seemed like a normal idea for her. I said to her, what if there was no L3? What would you do? You know, you are a teacher, you are a graduate. If I say to you, you go to a school and start teaching a kindergarten, what will you do? <laughs> she looked at me all confused because that's all she had known, L3, because that was the first year, at the second year at the school. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, she was, uh, as you can imagine, the emotions and the anxiety that follows. So I had to deal with all of that. However, I did say it is not a, and one of the things that, and and this probably is something that not many people might think is the best way, but I thought, and I still believe it was the best way to go. I said to the staff that there are certain, I believe in a certain way of pedagogy. This is what we are going to do. We are going to teach phonics. We are going to teach vocabulary. We are going to teach spelling. And we're going to teach comprehension and we're going to do this systematically and explicitly. Now, how to teach that to the students, 
I'm going to get a consultant and she will then teach you how to teach this to the students. Mm -hmm. This will take some time. So keep, keep doing what you're doing. But as and when I introduce something, that's exactly how you will do it. And it's not negotiable. And it was a bit of a novel idea for a principal to come and say that. And I said, that's because it is not a democracy about the best idea wins. It's about what is most effective. And meanwhile, I'm doing this. I'll also give you a lot of research. I'll, I'll guide you to all the research as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'll provide you with all the support. So I had the support, the system, and the reasoning for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. In spite of having those steps, when you go and tell someone that what you have been doing for the last 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, is, is incorrect. It is kind of dismissing their yeah. work. And that's a hard concept for people to accept. It is, yeah. If you go and tell someone like a reading recovery teacher who's been doing nothing but reading recovery and has invested all her life in that program and believes that this is the hill I'm going to die on. Mm. And then you turn up as a principal for three weeks and you say, sorry, we are not doing reading recovery at the school because it doesn't work. It is a hard pill to digest, but it is something that I thought at the end of the day, I was like, I'm not here for the comfort of adults. I'm here for the students. My line of sight was for the students. Marsden Public School had, we were sending like on average, at 12, only 12% 12 of our students were getting uh, receiving proficiency in year five, yeah. uh, about 7% in maths. So we were sending year six students to high school so one, uh, so probably 11 or 12 in, uh, out of 100 kids were able to read and write, and about seven or eight of them were able to do maths, age-appropriate level. And we were sending these kids to high school to access high school curriculum. To me, that was far more unacceptable than the wrath of my staff. So I was willing to take that challenge on because the focus was on ensuring that the students that go to high school more and more students should be able to access curriculum because that's where the disengagement happens. If you're not understanding, because high school is not going to teach you to read. Yeah. You read to learn in high school. You don't learn to read in high school. And yeah. then I will say that the history teacher, the chemistry teacher, the biology teacher, they don't have time to sit teach you. They are going to teach you concepts. Yeah. And they cannot sit there and comprehend every line in the textbook for you. And therefore, then the students are going to be disengaged. And that's when you have truancy and all kinds of problems. Um, so primary school is the school where you have to get them to be literate and numerate at proficient level, not at basic level. And that was another thing. So I took off even before the department had mandated it. When I went, when I came to Marston Road, I changed the school plan. I said, I do not want any national minimum standards as a target. We are going to have proficiency as a target. And yeah. I don't care if you're saying that at the moment, only 11% of our students are proficient. I don't care. That's a fact. That's a reality. There's no embarrassment in accepting that. The embarrassment would be to let it happen and be quiet about it and not do a thing about it. So we have to move this 11% and 7% and take it away. So let's not worry about national minimum standards, not interested in that. 90% of our students were achieving national minimum standards. So let's move on to proficiency standards. And to do that, this is what we're doing. And, um, and probably if I sat and told you everything that happened in the next two years, Brandon, we would be probably here sitting here for two hours, not two hours, <laughs> probably for two days. Yeah. You can imagine, it was yeah. a lot of uh, people feeling anxious, 
angry, yeah. upset, thinking she's a relieving principal. What is she doing? Coming and yeah. changing and uh, standing there and telling us that this is not how we teach and not asking us for our opinion. Um, you know, people feel that they are undervalued and that I was completely disregarding their, uh, their experience, which is not true because I know for a fact that at least 80% of the teachers want the best for the kids. No matter what, wherever you take that, I don't feel that people go to school thinking, I'm just going to go and do my bare minimum and come back. I don't care. Yeah. I won't say 100% because in every organization, you'll have people who are just there for really, it's a job. But yeah. most people put their heart and soul into it. So I yeah. knew that Jesus and Martin were doing the same. I just said to them, give me a year and a half. And if you're not happy with what's happening, then I will take back everything that I put in place because I was so sure of what I'm doing. And yes, and come 2018, uh, you know, first I had about 30, 40% of the people on board. Then then there were 30, 40% of the people who were thinking, ah, let's see what happens. If it works, it works. If not, she's not the principal. We'll just do what she's asking us to do. You know, just like we follow rules, we'll just follow her and we'll do. And then the 10 or 20% of the people who were quite angry and upset. And um, today I would say that if you come and do a survey, nine, probably, I would say 99%. I actually, you know, recently I did a survey. Only 1% disagrees with what I do at my school. <laughs> so I have got about 68 staff members. Yeah. So if one person, one person of the 68 disagrees, I'm okay. I'm all right. Mm. Yeah. And I think, uh, as I've always said, if 100% of the people say 100% of the time that I'm doing the right thing and I'm the best principal, then I'm not doing the right thing. <laughs> yes. Because that means I'm not acting on those people who are not pulling their weight or not doing the right thing. So yeah. I'm, uh, and I think my staff know that. They understand now because we have done, and I, I probably, as you asked me a question, I'll explain how I went about in the next five years. But yeah. that's how it started. It started off, you always start with a bit of, um, it was this, either I buy my time and wait and gain people's trust and then slowly introduce the change or just go bulldozing and bring the change in. And I was like, no, I haven't got the time. I'm here as a relieving principal. And I was, I knew I was going to go for the job. So yeah. I didn't want to just buy the time. And then once I get the job, then start making the change because that would be hypocritical. Yeah. So if you are going to have me as your principal, this is what's going to happen in the school. So it was from week three that I started bringing the changes. So it was right from everything. So we started with the English and then we moved on to the way we do things at the school. And as you know, there's so many changes and so many things that happen in the school right now. Uh, sometimes it's quite, it can be quite overwhelming to someone new. And they just it's, it can be overwhelming as to what we do at our school. But yeah. it's, like, it's like a little machinery at the moment. It just yeah. all flows, yeah. Yeah, look, just want to touch on a couple of things there that really stood out to me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the first thing is is about how how clear your vision is. And, and one of the things, um, as I speak to more school leaders, uh, one of the things that's really stood out to me is that in order for them to really bring about that change and to lead that school improvement, they need to have like this um, super clear vision as to what they want their school to kind of end up like. Um, mm -hmm. And they just really stick to that vision regardless of, you know, the, the, the potential casualties or, uh, you know, what things might go wrong. But once they've got that vision and they stick to it, people start to come on board once they start to see, uh, you know, hopefully those improvements come about. Um, and, you know, like you're also really right about how teachers, um, they get aligned to 
particular practices and it becomes a part of their identity and it can be really, really difficult mm -hmm. for them to part with that, you know, because like you mentioned, if they've been teaching this way for 20 years and then you're saying to them, the way you've been teaching is the wrong way of teaching, uh, yeah, it can be quite a, a hard pill to swallow. But, you know, what I've kind of noticed as, uh, you know, I have interacted with teachers who have kind of, um, you know, gone along that change journey, they end up being some of the biggest advocates for, you know, things like explicit instruction and, you know, the science of reading because they they see that that proof and they, they're they able to, uh, you know, acknowledge how difficult that has been in terms of changing, but then also seeing how much more effective it is, you know, and I think it's just um, such a, a great point that you make there about, you know, how once you kind of know what the right thing is to do uh, and, and it's the right thing for our students, that's what we've got to really stick to and understand that, you know, sometimes that means that you're going to have some adults who are going to be unhappy. Absolutely. And, and that has happened. And that's without a doubt, there were quite a few people in the beginning of the first two years who put in for transfers. Uh, and I, I would say most of them have stayed, uh, but there were a couple who were like, this is too much. She's, uh, she's a bit too much and, and who are averse to change. And they had gone into a you know, comfort. They had been in there and I was shaking their comfort zone. And that's okay because I was ready for those. Uh, I was ready for that kind of uh, reaction. But then you go. I went in knowing very well what I was doing. But as you said, I had such clarity in my own head that I knew what I was doing was right, and it had to be this way. And I wasn't going to make any compromises because at the end of the day, uh, what is in uh, what you're compromising is the student outcomes. And that was one thing I was not willing to compromise on. So whether it was some adults discomfort, a few or handful of adults discomfort against student learning, then I was very well happy to, you know, have those adults in discomfort, but not let go of what I thought was the best way of teaching my students. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me when I visited Marsden Road was the Marsden Way. Are you yeah. able to tell us a bit more about that and, and how it all came about? Sure. So by 2018, uh, I as I said, by end of 2017, uh, nearly most of the majority of the staff had understood that we were on a good path. Um, and this, some of them disgruntingly, but they all kind of were saying, oh, yes, what we are doing at our school is changing my way of teaching, my understanding and of how students learn. And I, I know a little bit so much more of grammar. I know so much more about uh, cognitive, uh, you know, how the, how the brain works. I have a better understanding of the cognitive load theory. And uh, so teachers were feeling better about themselves. In 2018, uh, I had my, we were sitting in the school holidays, summer school holidays with my exec team. And I said to my exec team that the discipline is not bad, but I still am not happy because I don't like kids. There can be a bit, because sometimes we actually accept some behavior such, like, such as kids rolling their eye at the teacher you know, or just being a bit, uh, for example, you know, when the teacher says, are you going to be listening or not? And they say, maybe, you know, that's rude. Like, you don't say maybe to someone, an adult, when they ask you to do something that is uh, asking you to do something appropriate. And teachers were just like, uh, that's uh, like, I, I just don't think accepting that answer from a 10 year old is good. We are not, we were not teaching explicitly. Like what I felt was we were teaching maths, we were teaching science, we we're teaching English explicitly. Why can't we teach our kids discipline, good manners, respect explicitly? And I was just talking this and Troy, who's, who was at the time my instructional leader, 
And he said to me, oh, Manisha, you own the Michaela School. And I said, what's that? And so he said to me, oh, there's a school in England that has a boot camp for two weeks and they teach children how to behave. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I said, but we won't call it a boot camp because we are teaching five and five-year-olds. We don't want to call it boot camp. How about yeah. we do something similar, but we give it a better talk. We give it a better way of, we approach it in a different way rather than like, a, you know, authoritarian, disciplinary kind of way. And so we come up with the civics and citizenship program. And uh, we wrote it ourselves and we, uh, I got the, uh, all the APs on board and I said to them, this is what I want. I want, us, I want us to teach our kids simple things such as addressing a teacher. You don't say, hi, hey, how do you walk into the office and say, excuse me, miss, can I have this? Simple things such as that. Waiting in the line, waiting for your turn, knocking at the door and waiting for the teacher to give you permission before you enter. How do you line up in the corridor? How do you walk to the library? You do not run, you do not push. Walking in two lines, what does that do? It avoids accidents, it avoids unnecessary hazards, it avoids uh, creating uh, you know, distraction for other kids because you're walking quietly. Things like that. How do you manage a book? How do you, how do you uh, respect your work? By looking after your book work, by making sure that there's no graffiti in the books. The other thing is how do you then go to the assembly? How do you sing the national anthem? How can you expect kids to be proud of, you know, uh, have belonging, a sense of belonging if you don't teach them how to sing the national anthem? Why is the singing the national anthem important? Why is the school song important? And we came up with a lesson for all of those. And for the first two weeks of school, we all we do is we assess the kids reading, writing and mathematics. And we teach them the civics and citizenship program for two weeks. And, and that's how the kids and how do we and, and it's, it's all nothing. It's, it's just not about behavior. It's also about work ethic. Simple thing as uh, when the teacher asks you a question, how do you put the board up, chin board? How do you hold the board? How do you pass the uh, when you're doing the morning routine? How do you pass the board from one student to another? It's not like three, four students walking around the classroom. It's time management in the classroom because we do not want there's too much spillage in schools, you know, uh, an announcement before races, an announcement before the school starts, lining up, then the teacher giving instruction to come inside the line, then somebody, then the teacher selecting two students to hand out the books. If you add up all those minutes, there's a lot of minutes that gets wasted. So yeah. we teach our kids how to be efficient. So, you know, being organized, how do you pass on the ruler? How do you pass on the pencils? How do you pass on the whiteboard? Everything is taught in the first two weeks. And by the time they're in year three, four, it becomes a thing of automaticity. They don't think about it. So now yeah. when my kids in year six walk to the library or anywhere, they just walk in two lines and they're not thinking, oh my goodness, I'm walking in two lines. They're not thinking, they just do it. Or when they're holding the chin board, they just do it automatically. Just like you would do when you see someone, you get up and you shake hands and they walk into the room. You don't think about it. It is yeah. something that happens to you because you're just, it's a practice. You know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make good practice, common practice. So you just don't, you're not using your cognitive load to think about those things. Exactly, and yeah. it has been a very successful program. Uh, as you know, when you were here, Brandon, I did not have a corridor full of students <laughs> waiting for me. We have very few accidents. I actually had someone from the WHNS ring me up and say, there's not many incidents recorded from your school. You have a school of 750 kids. Are you sure you're not recording accidents? <laughs> and I said, I, I hardly have accidents at my school. 
and I don't have too many kids running around falling. And it's 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 a pleasant school to work with. Mm. And uh, I have casual teachers who come to my school, and they are very happy to come back because they know exactly what is expected, and the kids are well behaved. I think yes. it is all about teaching kids simple things like good manners, respect. Uh, expectations, behavior expectations, and it's not a big drama. So that's our civics and citizenship program. It forms an important thing um, when people talk about well-being. And I always say to people, if I can give you well-being, Brandon, I will just give it to you. Yeah. But I cannot give you well-being. I cannot gift it to you. But what I can do is I could, I could, uh, I could, I could do so many skills and so much knowledge that you feel good about yourself. You know, and success is the best motivator. Is, when yeah. kids feel that they are they're doing better, when they when they're succeeding in their writing, in their mathematics, in the way they walk around, and they take pride in their work, that's well being for them. Mm. And and that's the only way out of it. You can't just give well being by saying to a child you're wonderful because that can only get you that far. Very soon the child is going to work out that that's really not good enough, and the teacher is just saying that to make me happy. And yeah. we might think kids don't understand, but kids are very perceptive. Uh, they, they can perceive those things and they understand those things and they know what good work is, what good behavior is, and what real, um, real uh, uh, what do you call it, appreciation looks like. And yeah. what just a condescending or not patronizing, uh, you know, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. We don't do that anymore. Don't get me wrong, Some I'm not talking about kindness. You have to be kind. At the end of the day, we are teaching five years, six years, seven year old. We have to show kindness, but where it deserves, but not kindness. But I don't accept mediocrity. If the child is able to produce better work, I'll accept better work. I'm not going to accept mediocrity. And I'm certainly not going to accept disrespectful behavior. There's no reason whatsoever for a five year old or a 10 year old to be disrespectful towards an adult. And mm. so we. And, and so when you first introduced the Marsden Way, what was the um, feedback like from the community? Um, I don't think there was any feedback or uh, I don't think the community had a uh, I did not get any uh, negative feedback. If anything, I've always had positive feedback from the community. The teachers were okay with it too. Uh, yep. I think they probably thought in the beginning that it was a bit too much and they felt like uh, that, you know, why do we want kids to walk in two lines? And why do you want, because I expect my kids to say, good morning, Mrs. Gazula, not hi, Mrs. Gazula. And then they were saying, but the kids are being friendly. They're still being lovely. What does it matter? And I said, it matters because I'm giving them uh, social um, culture. I'm giving them, uh, you know, something that cannot be, uh, I suppose the difference with why do people pay 35,000, 40,000 to a private school, elite private school? What's the difference? The curriculum is the same. What's the difference is we value the private system because a lot of the time people will say, that, oh, the discipline in the private schools are better than the public schools. So you're willing to pay thousands of dollars to go to a school that has got a better discipline behavior policy mm. but in a public school if i do the same it is seen as oh you're being unkind i don't think so i think teaching children good manners and respect is nothing there's nothing harsh about it i think uh, my kids are well behaved and the way they speak uh, i'm just preparing them to be good human beings decent human beings that know how to interact in the way i talk in a formal situation is different to the way i talk in an informal situation the way I talk amongst when I'm between friends and amongst friends is different to the way I talk when I'm with colleagues 
or mm. when I'm presenting at the, you know, what decorum should be maintained in what arena is something that we understand as adults. But if you're taught as child, you come across as intelligent, you come across as smart and knowledgeable. And that's what sometimes maybe some of the elite schools you pay money to go to elite schools for. At my school, it's just part and parcel of what we do. And nobody, I don't want kids to, I don't want anyone to say, oh, that's a school in Sydney Southwest. So kids must be throwing chairs out of the window. And that's the perception most people have of some of the schools over here. And mm. why would they have such perception? Because they just feel that the kids over here are unruly and that's not true at all. So I just wanted to eradicate uh, that uh, deficit uh, thinking, uh, deficit model of thinking. I just want people to think that our kids can behave. Our kids can be also taught the right way of, uh, you know, behaving in different uh, places in different decorums. And that's it. It's simple as that. It's simple teaching of basic good manners, respect, a bit, taking a pride in your presentation, taking pride in who you are, where you are, and taking pride in your school. And my kids love it. They actually think they're coming to an elite school. Mm. It goes, uh, I stand at the front, uh, front gate every morning. If I'm not there, my definitely one of my, we all rostered. My deputy principals are rostered. And the kids don't walk in through the gate unless they say good morning first. And that happened because as a, I, I like to go out in the morning because I like to say hello to people and good morning to the students. And I noticed one day that I was saying good morning to the children as they're walking in. And some children would just walk past me and not even acknowledge that. Mm. If I did that to you, Brendan, you would think, if you said good morning to me and I just walked past you, you're going to form an opinion of me, which is not a very nice opinion. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, here I am as a principal of the school, standing yeah. at the gate, saying good morning to these children, and they're just walking past me. And mind you, they're not trying to be rude to me. No one's told them any different. Yeah. So I just stopped them and I say, no, you're the child. I'm the adult. You're the student. I'm the principal. I'm the teacher. You stand here. You wish me good morning. And then you walk through the gates. So now every morning the kids walk in, they first say good morning to me. And as after I wish them good morning, they go, I do that 300, 400, 500 kids. I don't care how many kids walk into that gate. I'll say good morning to each of those kids. And that's how the day begins. You set them up for good behavior, positive behavior, a learning mind. I've come to school. I've got my school head on my shoulders. And that's, that's what the citizenship program is all about. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I had heard a lot about uh, the Marsden Way and the citizenship program that you had, and uh, you know, you'd been compared to Catherine Burblesing from Michaela Community School. And well, to be honest, I wasn't too sure what I was going to be coming into and seeing, um, but just to kind of paint the picture for people who are listening, I walked into a school and the kids they were happy, they were learning, uh, they were engaged in what the teacher was saying. Uh, you know, the the teacher had time to think. Um, the teacher was animated and, uh, you know, not just animated because they were a good teacher, but because they had the opportunity to teach properly because they, they weren't constantly being interrupted by, uh, you know, students with uh, the inability to focus because they haven't been taught how to do so. And, and so, you know, when we're, when we're hearing about these behaviours that are being taught at, at Marsden Road, um, it's actually assisting their learning and it's also then, like you said, making them um, academically successful, which then increases their motivation. And uh, it was yeah, plain to see when I walked in, that's what I was looking at. Um, and, yeah, so credit to you and your staff because uh, it's, yeah, it's really special what you've got going on there. And, and I think you should be really proud of, of um, where you've gotten to through uh, the program and your leadership. 
Thanks, man. And you're right. You know, I, uh, I, I, sit, I come to school every day, and I don't have to deal with problems. I don't have to deal. With, and that's not to say that kids don't get into arguments or fights or anything like mm. that, because they are kids. But they're yeah. minor, and nothing is. Uh, my teachers are not coming to school unhappy. I have very low staff absences. I have very high student attendance. Um, and uh, it is, as I said, even the community. They are also the parents say good morning, Mrs. Gazula. And yeah. I'm like, good morning to them as well. Uh, it is just maintaining, and there's no, the community is happy, the kids are happy, everyone is happy, the teachers are happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just moving on to the recent um, Grattan Institute report, there's actually been a couple which has featured Marsden Road. So we had ending the lesson lottery and then how to implement a whole school curriculum approach. Uh, and in that, that, that report there, one of your teachers was quoted as saying, I feel like I've learned and grown so much having this reference to core program, which is quick and easy, has had a massive impact on the kids because we're more knowledgeable, our teaching is better. Can you tell me a bit about the core program and what that includes? Of course. So the core program is our teaching and learning program for the school. It is assist, It is scope and sequence, basically. So as you know, the, uh, the syllabus is there, the, doc, the curriculum is there. But how do you interpret the curriculum is quite a task if you are a new teacher. And quite often, um, I don't rem- um, like I remember when I first programmed, I would go home in the holidays and I would take the syllabus and I would write my unit of work for in those days of HSIE. Then I would write my unit of work for my English, what I was teaching and my maths. But that's and then I would have it all in my program and I would teach that. But no one else saw that program other than me. And yeah. And if I taught a year four and the next year the students went to year five, the year five teacher doesn't know what I have covered. Yes, she might know that the, this is what the curriculum or the syllabus is telling, uh, telling what should, be, could, should have been covered in year four, but exactly how I've covered it, how much of the grammar I've covered, how much of the maths, the, it's because it's a scope and sequence. Wherever I stop, where does she start from? It doesn't, the, the, the syllabus doesn't define that. It is, it is quite, uh, it, it's very interpretive in the sense, the way you, you take it and you interpret it, depending on every teacher. So, and also if I, when I came here and I first asked the teacher, the year two teacher, do you know what's happening in year six? They had no idea what's happening in year six. If I went and asked a year six teacher, do you know what they're teaching in year three? This year six teacher didn't know what was being taught in year three. So it was just every stage was like a silo in itself, like a different school. So they would prepare for their own stage, not knowing what was covering, what was what had happened the year before, or not knowing what's going to happen the next year. So what we did was, and again, another thing is, it also depends on the number of teachers on that grade. What was their interpretation of the syllabus? Who's sitting there and doing that? Who is working out? Sometimes people have been confused between the outcome and the indicator, not realizing the outcome is what we should, the indicators are simply indicators. I've had discussions with people where they thought the indicators are mandated. And I'm like, no, it's just one of the many indicators. But just a discussion from there, Brandon, it was, it was quite scary to see that people were so confused as to how to take the syllabus and draft it into a program that is effective, that we can teach. So we came out, again, this is something that Joanne and I worked on it when I was a deputy principal at Black Hill Street. Yeah. So it came up to us that why don't we come up, why don't we write the scope and sequence? We take the uh, syllabus and we write the scope and sequence and we have a, you know, a sequenced way of teaching. And it has evolved. Today we have a core program. 
when you come it's it's a very simple thing so it has a core program let's take a subject like english because that's the most complex subject to teach because english has got this three elements of reading writing and uh, is it listening and it's what speaking and listening now yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then you have um, in the writing you have the 10 areas of writing so you have the ideation and then you have the secretarial so you have paraf- uh, you know you have paragraphs you have uh, cohesion you have vocabulary you have spelling you have sentence structure you have audience whereas in the reading you have your vocabulary fluency phonics phonemic awareness and your comprehension so each of those substrands how do you start from kindergarten and teach it to year 6 so let's take something like grammar so you take something like grammar. So I in my in our core program, it tells you in kindergarten, these are the things you will cover. So you'll have to cover nouns, pronouns, uh, su- uh, subjects, predicate, and simple punctuation like full stop and capital letters. That's what will be covered in your uh, uh, kindergarten. In year one, you will come, you'll have this, this, and this, plus this, this, and this. In year two, you'll cover this, this, and this. And it goes all the way to year six, where you're telling the teachers they'll be learning about adverbial clauses and ellipses. So one of the things, if you remember last year, they were saying that some of the year nine students were using uh, year three punctuation in NAPLAN, uh, whereas 47% of our year five students were proficient in using punctuation. And that's a very high number given our context and the people that we, uh, and our students that we have, who some of them have been speaking English for less than three years. And 47% of those kids could proficiently punctuate their sentences in the writing uh, um, test. So we teach, and that that has what his, the, NAP, uh, the core program does. So what it is, when the teacher in year four, she has a core program, she knows exactly what was covered in year three and what will be covered in year five. So it's a flow. And it's not left to people to just decide. So on planning that the teachers come and they say, okay, this is what the core program says we should be teaching, what we have covered in term one. Let's see now, let's see what we are going to cover in term two. So everybody, the school has a coding system. In term one, it's yellow color. In term two, it is green and so on. And so they just color code the core program to see what was covered in term one. Okay, now let's cover this in term two and let's cover this in term three. And then of course, you know, they come and plan their unit of work. And then how they deliver because this is a question that quite often gets asked to me. Isn't it prescriptive? And I'm saying, yeah, and so is the syllabus. <laughs> the syllabus tells you what to teach. I'm just taking the syllabus and I have all I have done is I've interpreted the syllabus, broken it down into real, real small fractions so you can understand what to teach and when to teach. And then the pedagogy tells you how to teach. How you deliver it is your art. Because I can give you a lesson and I'll have the same lesson, yet how we deliver it to my class depends on the kind of teacher I am. So that's yeah. where your art and your style comes into. And I'm not taking that away from my teachers. You're not standing there like puppets and saying the same thing. It's not direct instruction with the capital DI. It is yeah. you know, explicit instruction. So they do have the liberty of using their style, their personality into the way they implement it. But the core program will tell you when you're teaching, what you're teaching in which year, and how you'll teach it. So in uh, when we first show the core program, it is quite overwhelming. And it is something that people find, wow, it's so confusing. It's like I, the way I to give you, a, I always say, it, it's like looking at a dictionary. Once I give a dictionary, I say, this is the words in the English language. You're going to be like, wow, it's too many. But once you know how to work the dictionary, it's easy. 
So yeah. the core program is exactly like that. When teachers first come to my school, they get overwhelmed by looking at the core program. But after they've used it for three or four terms, none of my teachers will go back to any other way. I can't imagine any of these teachers going to another school. And if they don't have a core program, they're going to be very, very upset. Because it takes away, as you said, as it says in the Grattan report, it takes away that all of that angst, all of that uh, thing that I have to now look at the syllabus, different syllabus. It's there right there in front of you. What do I have to teach in term four for science? What do I have to teach in history? What do I have to teach? Because I'm a year four teacher. And therefore, everyone is doing exactly the same thing in the school. There is no gaps. Everything in the content is covered. And I'm relaxed as a principal knowing that you know, the subjects and syllabus are covered as the way it should be. And yeah. And, and you, you briefly touched on it there when you have new staff coming in, what's your onboarding, um, you know, process like, because you've got quite a few, sure. um, you know, systems and structures in place. Uh, yeah. So what, what's it like for them? Uh, so we would, we prefer, if we're going to have new staff, we do prefer them to start at the beginning of the year. Uh, because yep. then we have the two weeks when we do our Master in Road Civics and Citizenship program. That's the time when we take them and we just completely uh, induction program. It's a very long process. Um, yep. So when we, we actually get them, one day we get them and we do the entire induction process with our APCIs and our two deputy principals. And they go a bit dazed. Uh, and then we say to them, don't worry, come back and we'll use so much support. Now, two of my APCs, you have met both of them, Natalie and Amanda. Yeah. And uh, they were two of my, they have been here for over 20 years. And one of those people who probably when I first started must have thought, we have seen four principles. You also going to go. So yeah. we will just wear you out or we will just bear you. <laughs> today, they are my two strong pillars. They are some of my, one of my best teachers, best practitioners. And why is that? Because they are smart, intelligent, hardworking women who realized very soon, oh, this is good. This is good for me as a teacher. And this is good for the students. This is the right way to do. And so they have embraced it wholeheartedly. And they take on these new teachers and they sit with them, a lot of theory. Then they go and team teach in the classroom. And then they go back again and they say, let's do, now you teach and I'll watch exactly what we do with our students. Yeah. So in the beginning, and they go and do a lot of demonstration lessons in the classroom for all those teachers because we have two APCIs and they'll say, okay, I'll do a uh, demonstration lesson morning routine, one maths, one reading, one writing, okay, this week. Next week, I'm going to come and do it again. In week three, you do it, we'll do it together. Then in week five, you do it and I'll give you feedback and, and so and so forth. So it does take a while. And um, at the moment, I've got two, three new teachers at my school. And, uh, and they're on, on class. And term one, they were like, it's too much. But I just had a meeting with two of them because we have parent-teacher interview next week. So I was preparing them as to how to give. I was giving them one-on-one -on -one professional learning on giving parent-teacher interviews. And yeah. I asked them, how is it going? And they said, look, it's a lot, but we understand why. And there's a lot of support. And I said to them, that's okay. I don't have a problem. You don't have to figure it out all in one, in one term. My staff yeah. has known this for six years. We have got here, it has taken us six to seven years to get here. So I don't expect to get here in six, seven weeks time. What I'm looking for, Brandon, with new staff is their attitude. I'm not worried about your um, 
I don't expect you to learn everything in one term. I don't expect you to learn everything in one year. But if you have the right attitude, the right ability, and you have the ability, then I'm happy to give you whatever support you need. That's all yeah. I need. I need your attitude and your ability because neither can I change too much. <laughs> if you just don't have the attitude and if you just lack the ability, no matter what I have in place for you, it's going to be very difficult. But most, I would say to you, eight out of 10 teachers we have absorbed because they've come with the right attitude. Some, yeah. some, and even then, so I give people at least two, if they're temporary teachers, I give them two years. And after two years, they're still not bringing anything on board. They're not taking on board. We probably say to them, look, this is not the school for you. Mm. But I would say to you, 80% of the teachers um, are here and lots of them have become permanent. Yeah. And kind of just building on, on that idea, but one of the, the trickiest things for principals to, to balance is the needs of the different stakeholders. You know, so you've got your students, your parents, mm-hmm. teachers, and then, you know, even above you, you know, your directors. And, uh, you know, how do you, how do you balance all of that? I think when the students started showing, when we, when our school started showing improvement in student results, the parents are not, parents are not going to complain if their child is doing well at school. So if I, at the beginning of this uh, podcast, I did say to you only 11% of our kids were going, were proficient in reading and writing. Today, yeah. 67% of our students are proficient in writing. We did well, then we did, we are about state in writing today. And, yeah. and I'm talking about proficiency. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have got nearly 37% of our students in proficiency now. Uh, that's a big jump. So when parents see that the kids are doing well, when parents see that we are providing everything that we can do for the kids. So I don't charge kids anything for the textbooks. I don't charge anything for the excursions. I say to the parents, I will do everything that I can to make sure that your child gets the best academic um, learning at our school. What I want from you is your support in the sense, bring them to school every day on time in full school uniform and with decent food. That's all I'm asking you. Easy. And we'll work together. So at the beginning of the year, I have meet the teacher night. I have the parents with me for an hour. The first year when I asked, when I said I was going to have this, uh, my staff said to me, you'll be lucky to get 20 parents. And I had 82 uh, because I handed out invitations. I stood at the grade and I spooked and I did. In um, nowadays, I think we have 350 chairs in the hall and I run out of space. Yeah. So I have people standing at the back. So over 400 parents come every uh, for the first day when I have the meet the staff night. And yep. I go through for one hour, I go through an explanation as to why we do what we do. Yeah. Why is it important that you support this, uh, support us in this? And I'm very honest, brutally honest, in fact. Um, and some people, sometimes I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if somebody heard me say these things, but I'd rather be honest and upfront with the parents because at the end of the day, I'm doing nothing to harm their child. Yeah. I have nothing in this. There's nothing in it for me to gain. All I want is my kids to have the best possible start to education. And once that message is clear to parents, they are on board. I haven't had, maybe in the very beginning, maybe a couple of parents uh, who thought that I was a bit too strict. But even then, they have backed off and I have got full support from the community. I haven't had a single parent complain about what happens at school because they can see how well the child is settled and how much they enjoy. Our kids, we don't have kids crying and coming to school. So I don't think 
my parents are complaining. My teachers, as you know, are not complaining because they have a good school to come to. And my dad is not going to complain because the results are going well. He gets no complaint from my school. Uh, so everyone's happy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm achieving the school targets. So there's nothing to complain. Uh, at the end of the day, I feel that everything that we do is with the students in our sight. And if I'm making all the decisions, whenever I think of what I'm thinking, what is in it for my students? And if it's, everything is pointing to the child, then I know I made the right decision. Mm. And it's okay. No one can complain about that. Yeah. So say I'm a principal or I'm a school leader at a, a new school. Um, where would you suggest they start with? Uh, if you in an established school, already established school? Uh, so you're, you're starting at a new school, you know, and you're looking right. to, um, yeah, yeah, I guess, make your first step. What, what sort of thing do you think they should start with? I think with? if I went to a school tomorrow, the first yeah. thing I would do is I will pull up the school plan and I'll see what the plan is. And uh, it depends on different scenarios. Okay, let's say if I go to a school and it's a school that is doing all right, there's nothing, you know, screaming out and saying, oh, goodness, the school is drowning. Then I'll go back and look at the trend. If the school has got the same kind of result each year and is stagnated, now that's the place that I will work on. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of schools where you have communities that are very well, um, they, are, they are quite uh, ardent about the children learning. They invest in their children's learning and parents work hard and the kids do well. Now, if that school has got a result where 50 to 60% of their kids are already achieving proficiency, so you go as a principal, and I'm not going to sit there and think, oh, 50, 60% of the kids are achieving proficiency. That's a great, you know, that's a great percentage. I would think, okay, let's go back and see, is it 50 and 60% for the last 10 years? If it is the case, that means the school has stagnated. Then my challenge would be, okay, why not make it 75? You know, 50 and 60 yeah. is way above state, way above the yeah. previous uh, challenge. Why not make it 75? What is stopping us? Basically, nothing that we are doing has changed. So mm -hmm. that would be a place for me to start. And, and probably uh, ask the question of the staff, what is it that we can do better? Yeah. If it's a school like the one that I came to, where we had very low percentages, that would be a very good starting point. Is this acceptable? Yeah. What can we do to fix this? And then I can put things in place. But if it's a school that's already doing well, then my next challenge would be to where can we go better? Now, if I go to a school where 85% of the kids are achieving proficiency, I probably won't go to that school as a principal because I'm like, what can I do here? Mm. I'm not mm. needed in that school. I'm just going to be a you know a gatekeeper, <laughs> you know, sign yeah. in the administrative side. So uh, probably I think it would depend upon the context of the school. But every yeah. school there's always room for improvement. Yeah. There is no school that's a perfect school. And if the kids are doing well, let's look at your teachers. How can we? Uh, are they going to be doing the same thing if they go to another school? Will they be equally effective, or are they just effective because they're in a school where the kids are already learning? So yeah. work on the teachers, work on their pedagogical understanding, on their pedagogical skills. You know, there's always things to do. So it just depends. It would depend a lot on the school that I'm going to, Brandon. So mm -hmm. I think the first thing I would go and look is at the student results and start from there. That would be always, as I said, students is where I start from. And, and so, yeah. Yeah, really good advice there. And I think what really stands out from what you're saying is just how how important it is to have those high expectations and, and just that mentality that you can always be better. You know, you can always do things better and, um, you know, to, to kind of keep pushing your staff that, that there are different areas of improvement. Uh, look, as we 
as we start to wrap up today, um, you know, this this podcast is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So just wanted to ask you, you know, what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? And it might be based on, you know, questions that you've been um, asked a lot or maybe common misconceptions that you've come across or even just um, information that's made a huge difference to your own development. But, yeah, so what, what do you think um, more teachers need to know about? I think, uh, in, I think teachers need to know about how to teach. I think I feel sorry for the teachers at times because there's so much confusion as to teachers get told every two years to change what they're doing. I think, I think that's what is causing teacher fatigue. So when people say teachers want more salary or teachers, I don't think that is the, I think what's happening is teachers are, sometimes I look at teachers and they seem like hamsters on that wheel. They're running, but they're reaching nowhere. You know, they're nonstop working and running and exhausting themselves, but they can't seem to find an end or a destination. It's not like they're running a marathon and they're reaching, they're seeing the end point. I think that's what I think teachers need to, uh, I think they don't need to hear this, but I think they need to be helped with this. They need support with this. I think it has to come from the top. I have never, never, ever let any new fad come and interrupt what I'm doing. So come what may, if I know this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. And this is probably one of the things that gets into, you know, like if you remember about four or five years ago, coding was the big thing. You know, every school wanted to do coding. Now, thanks to Chad GPD, that's probably going to be the most redundant job. <laughs> you know? So yet we were here thinking a five-year-old and six-year-old should be coding. And I'm thinking, really, does everyone have to become a coder? Uh, but everyone has to be literate and numerate. So when my teacher said, what are we doing, Manisha, about coding? I said, nothing. I said, let's first teach them to read and write and do some maths. And then, then we'll worry about them becoming coders. And I have not regretted that. And this is what I'm saying. We're trying to jump on the bandwagon as leaders yeah. sometimes because we are worried that we might be the only school that may not be doing something and everybody else is doing something. And I think what I've done is I've protected and safeguarded my teachers from that. I have introduced a lot of new things but it has always been in one direction. Okay, if I'm introducing something, it is because of the way we teach. If I've introduced a core program because it's supposed to explicit instruction. If I introduce the master citizenship because it's supposed to behavior. But it's never yeah. about, oh, you know what, today we are going to be now whole language. Now let's get rid of that. Let's do a bit of phonics. Oh, we don't know how to teach phonics. Let's do a combination of whole language and phonics, which doesn't work. Oh, now let's, let's forget all this. Let's do this. And now let's forget that program. Let's do this program. I don't pick any program as such. And I think I find, I feel sorry for teachers where every two or three years, the schools bring something new, they add something new and they add something new without taking away what doesn't work. And suddenly the teachers are drowning in all these things that, uh, you know, some APCI will come from another school with some bright idea and they say, let's do this. And that APCI will leave after two years. Another APCI will come and say, why don't we do this? And I think that's what is probably my opinion that I could be wrong. But I do believe that teachers are a bit tired of being told every two years to change and swap and relearn. And then being told this doesn't work. I think that's probably one of the things. And I, I, that's why I would want teachers to make themselves a little bit more aware of what really works. And... Yes, there's a lot of research to not Google, but look at research. Uh, you know, there are things people can always say, oh, but have you looked at this article? If it's just an article written by someone, that's not a research. A research is where some study has been done on a large cohort 
of people, students, and look at them. What does the research say? And enlighten yourself, and then stand up for what you believe in. And uh, I think I think that might give them a little bit more peace uh, because if they're doing what they believe in, they'll do it better. And what they know, and, and, and but at the end of the day, um, I do feel for them. Uh, but the solution would has to come from the top. It has to come from the top leadership. It doesn't go from the gra- grassroots level. It goes from the top towards the grassroots level and providing them with the support. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, if, if we we're able to change uh, the way that initial teacher education is done here in Australia, it would uh, it would certainly fix a lot of our problems um, in the classroom. And and I think when you when you do have that understanding of uh, you know evidence informed practice, it just allows you to make um, better decisions. You know, so when when Absolutely. you are yes. you know when you are trying to decide whether to go with the program or um, you know whether to take up that that new fad or trend that you're talking about. When you do have that understanding of how learning happens and how effective teaching happens, um, you're able to kind of say yes and no with uh, a lot more confidence as you as exactly, you kind of yes. And that's what I'm saying because you you don't have to be a rebel, but what you can do is you can put forward your ideas and your suggestions more rationally and can yep. be heard if you had if you have the knowledge and the evidence. I mean, you know, this evidence-informed teaching and learning practices. That word is again thrown left, right, and center and into practice that I know is not evidence-informed. Uh, so what happens is it becomes like every other word that becomes the trend or the fad. And right now it's this evidence-informed practice is the most you know used word in our system at the moment. And unfortunately, I see a lot of the times, a lot of the practice happens, goes against evidence, but yet yeah. they are practiced under the umbrella of evidence-informed. And I wonder which evidence. And I think to question that, to have the confidence to able to challenge those uh, pedestrian thoughts is something that teachers should develop and have a have a discussion, have a debate about it in a healthy fashion. I'm not saying go and you know yell in the staff room and create a ruckus. That's not what I mean. Uh, you know, have your colleagues together, sit together, look at the research. Say, what is this telling us? What does explicit instruction mean? What does direct instruction mean? Where does it work? Where does it not work? What is the results telling us? How should we teach five year old? How should we teach 16-year-old. There's a lot of things that you can have a debate, but I think a well-informed debate is probably the best way to go. And uh, and they, uh, But again, teachers don't have the authority to change things. So uh, they can be heard, uh, and but they should be heard for the right causes, yes. Yeah. Benisha, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you know, your, your passion uh, and enthusiasm for education really comes through in our conversation. And and I, I hope that people can also hear that, uh, you know, you're not this you know, military-like uh, principal, but, you know, you're someone that just really cares about our students and that this is the way you see um, works best for, for your school and your context. And, um, you know, you're going to kind of stay... Uh, pretty aligned to that vision as you as you keep moving forward, and and you know I look forward to uh, you know seeing what happens next with with Marsden Road, and and you know even with your own career, and uh, you know I'm, I'm sure I'll uh, I'll reach out for for some uh, more, more help at different times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll cross paths quite often, and I look forward to that too. And thanks for having me. And uh, yes, and as I said, anybody is always welcome to come to Marsden Road, and they can see that it's a lovely school as you yourself have witnessed it. The kids are happy. The teachers are happy. It's a good place to be. But again, thanks for having me. And you have a wonderful afternoon. Good luck with what you're doing. And as I say, I can see you're doing a wonderful job too, Brandon. There. 
bringing us all together and sharing ideas. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking to school leaders and gaining an insight into their decision-making process and the intentionality behind it. When you listen to Manisha speak, it is evident how clear her vision is and how she maintains a relentless focus on it through all of her communication and decision-making. The other thing that I wanted to comment on, because it is based more on my observations, is that while Manisha has high expectations for her staff, she also has a warmth to her that shows that she values them and supports them. Troy touches on this in the next episode. Here are my key takeaways from today. It's so important that we communicate that we are here for the students first, not the adults. Her attention to detail when looking at improving every aspect of the school to ensure it is as effective and efficient as possible. The importance of having a whole school enacted and sequential curriculum. How systems and processes support both students and teachers. High expectations doesn't mean that it's not done with care and empathy. I loved her example of how her school is so safe due to the systems and processes that someone from WHS actually questioned her accuracy of recording incidents. The positive learning environment also leads to decreases in absences for both staff and students. Next episode, you will hear the second part on Marsden Road Public School, where I will chat with Deputy Principal Choi Veray. Troy will dig into the key aspects of the core program and what it actually looks like in the classroom. Following Troy's episode, you will hear from Shaping Minds, Jordan Sullivan, and how the science of learning has shaped his mind. So, that's it from me for today. But as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.